Good evening. I see some of you braved the pending winter storm to come out to our second half uh, this evening. Uh, Pastor, I noticed that uh, we were watching the, a little bit of the Chiefs game this afternoon. I was thinking, you know, the tickets for the Chiefs game that cost the most are the ones right up front. <laughs> Just an observation. Just a way to make somebody feel loved in this church. If we were in Ecuador, I would just move down to the fifth row and preach from there. But uh, it it is interesting how uh, cultures are the same everywhere in Ecuador, too. Uh, We have our new great big building, and the uh, first thing people wanted to do was sit in the very back of it uh, for the service. So we just began setting out only five rows of chairs at the beginning of the service and then adding chairs slowly as people arrive. So uh, it's not just it's not just you. We've been uh, talking a little bit uh, this morning uh, about the idea of conquering the barriers to making disciples. We covered being realistic about the challenges of the mission ahead of us. We talked about being confident in the power of the message that we have to transform lives. The proof and the evidence of that being you. You who have received that message and been transformed by that message. Uh, now this evening, we're going to put some feet a little bit to, to the to the message that we heard this morning, and we're going to cover some two topics that will be a little bit more practical uh, uh, about this theme. Be flexible to step out of your comfort zone and be obedient, and God will do the work. Let's uh, just stand for a moment in prayer uh, as we begin to consider God's word. This evening, Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word, uh, to study it, and to apply it to our lives. It's a magical process that uh, really only your your spirit can do in an effective way in our hearts. Uh, on our own, we can't understand your word. On our own, we can't really comprehend how to apply it to our lives. But your spirit has to move within us uh, to make it that that living word. That applies directly to each one of our our situations in life. We thank you for your promises and and for the examples that you've placed in your word. Not making your word a list of do's and don'ts, but um, a, a, a great story of people who have been in our shoes and have had to overcome some of the challenges that we too also must overcome. We thank you for uh, your word and its and its. Um, ability to work in our lives and change our hearts, give us a new vision and a new purpose. We just pray that you would work through us this this evening, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we want to turn now to Joshua chapter 6, if you have your uh, Bibles with you, Joshua chapter 6, we'll be talking about... uh, the 40 after the 40 years of the nation wandering in the desert remember we left off this this morning uh, the nation rejected the offer of god to go into jericho and god punished that entire generation with 40 years of wandering in the deserts so that that entire generation would pass away except for the two faithful men who who encouraged the nation to to take on the challenge 
from the beginning, Joshua and Caleb. We, a lot of things happened throughout that time of wandering in the desert, and we jump now to Joshua uh, in chapter 6 of Joshua, verses 1 through 14. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark, before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then shall you shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark uh, of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And, and, and then they continued, as they continued through this process, we see uh, seven days they circled the city. Verse 14 says, in the second day they marched around the city once, returned to the camp. And so they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you, uh, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. And so as, as, the people are, as the people are gathering and as they are obeying, uh, verse 20 says, So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And then they devoted, then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys with the edge of the sword. So how did this happen? Can you imagine being in the desert for 40 years as a young child 
being told by your parents, the reason we're walking through the desert again today, son. Why is that, Dad? Well, we made a bad decision. We made a poor decision in Kadesh. Well, how would you raise your children walking around in the desert, wandering around the desert for 40 years? I, I, if, I, if, it were, if it were me, I would put my kids through Navy SEALs training. I, I would have them ready to battle. I would train them so that they would be so much more prepared than I was coming out of the land of Egypt. Uh, I would try to make sure that they knew every weapon, every technique, every fighting style. I would have them ready to conquer the land. And can you imagine having a whole generation going through the desert, finally reaching this point, we're going to do it. We're going after Jericho. Jericho will be ours. And hearing from Joshua, their great commander, what's our strategy going to be? We're going to walk. Well, where are we going to walk? Should we split into two teams? No, we're going to walk around the city. And then, so we're going to take them from behind? No, we're going to walk around the city and then we're going to come back to camp. And we're going to do it for seven days. Okay, okay. And so we're going to try to fake them out and then, and then, and then we're going to hit them. No, no. On the seventh day, we're going to walk around the city seven times. Can you imagine what the commanders and, 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 and what these young men who's, who spent their whole lives in the desert are thinking at this moment? This is not what I signed up for. We're ready to go. What's going on? Imagine hearing that as the, as the strategy for, for conquering a nation. Sometimes we approach making disciples in a similar way. We, we want to attack. And a lot of evangelism conferences, I grew up through a Bible church too. I grew up through the, to the, through the era of Bible uh, evangelism conferences where it was, five, it was the four spiritual laws, it was Romans Road, it was every way you could possibly imagine to package the gospel into a presentation and then be ready. Get on a bus, you sit down next to somebody, so do you know where you're going to go if you die today? And hit them with it. Because you got your presentation all set. You're ready to attack. That is not very effective, I'll just tell you right now. Maybe it, it can be effective over time, but when God called us to make disciples, it's almost like that feeling. You're going to hear that. You're going to feel a little bit like the nation of Israel tonight. Because you're ready to attack. You want to know, okay, what's the best method? What's the best, me what's the best method for evangelism? What's the most effective way to present the gospel? And the reality is, we're going to tell you to walk. Maybe take a walk. Maybe go on a hike. Maybe sit down and eat dinner. Maybe go watch a soccer game. Maybe join a photography club. Making disciples is not what we've been taught through. There was a whole generation in the kind of the Billy Graham generation of big campaigns and big projects and big presentations and big stadiums and invite people to come in. This generation today will not come in. If you, if you think making disciples is all about trying to convince someone to come to church, 
you're not going to make that much progress. We have to be able to be willing to spend the time it takes to make relationships, to build those friendships, and be flexible enough and creative enough to reach out to them. And this isn't just my idea. Uh, this isn't just uh, Gospel of Dave. Uh, we know this by the examples. Jesus, first of all, he spent his three and a half years of ministry spending time with the people. He preached to sinners by spending time with them. Luke 7.34, he was known, this is an accusation against Jesus by the Pharisees. This was his reputation. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees here, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Why would the Pharisees say that about him? Because Jesus would go anywhere he was invited. He would sit down at the table of anyone who invited him to, to listen. Anyone who wanted to talk, he was there. He was in that environment. Is We could put ourselves into these, into these verses, modernize this a little bit, and was Jesus a tailgater? Maybe so. For a football game? You know what tailgating is, right? There's Chiefs fans in this audience. Jesus would have gone to the soccer game. Jesus would have accepted the invitation to the block party. Jesus would have, would have gone to where the sinners are. Luke 7.47 says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, the context of this is uh, the alabaster jar and the anointing of Jesus' feet. They tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. One of the fascinating things that they don't tell you in evangelism school when you're presenting the four spiritual laws or the Romans road or those kinds of things is that most often if you are really reaching out into the world, one of the easiest things is to convince people that they're sinners. In my experience, most sinners know they're sinners. They know that what they're doing isn't right. They know. They know. You don't have to convince them for the most part. Uh, we work in a Catholic country, so that's even more so the case. Because if there's one thing that a good Catholic knows, it's all about sin and condemnation. They know that part. The Catholic Church is really good about that. What they don't know is anything to do about it. And so they kind of throw up their hands, they do their best, they go to Mass, and, they be a little, and they're a little angel during the Mass, and then they do whatever they want the rest of the weekend. So Jesus preached to sinners by spending time with them, so much so that he was willing to face the accusations of the religious that he was a drunkard and a glutton because he spent so much time with the, the people that the religious people decided were unworthy. Not just Jesus. We can take some other examples from the New Testament. Philip as well. Philip... Philip preached to the Ethiopian by listening. This is a fascinating part of the story of, the, of, of Philip with the Ethiopian in, in Acts chapter 8, verses 30 through 31. We find, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? 
and he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. You know, sometimes we're so worried about our presentation, about how do we start. That's one of the problems I have with, and I don't have a problem with you using any method of explaining the gospel that is easy for you to remember. But it's probably best to have a catalog of verses that explain the gospel that you have memorized in no particular order that the Holy Spirit can call to mind in a natural way that you can respond to the situation you're facing. But sometimes we're so obsessed with our marketing presentation of the gospel that we're not listening. If your neighbor comes over to you to confess, I think my husband's been cheating on me. Well, you know, there's a wonderful answer in the Bible for that problem. That's called sin, and I have an answer for you. That's probably not where she wants to start. She doesn't want to start with a marketing. She wants somebody to listen. They need someone to understand where they're coming from. If Philip had been walking along the, the, the road practicing his uh, ministry presentation and concentrating so much on what he was doing, he, that chariot would have just driven right on by. But what does the text say? As Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. He was paying attention. Paying attention to who, where that person is in life. When we're in tune with the Holy Spirit, He will provide you those opportunities to interact with people in a, in a dramatic way. I've had the opportunity a couple of times in Ecuador because they know me as a pastor now in Ecuador. And so I've had Catholic friends call me to pray for their dying grandmother in their, in their home. And they're, will you come? And will you come? And I had a good friend of mine, she's not a believer. She, she called me on the phone. She said, will you come and talk to my grandma? She's stopped eating. And she's 95 years old, not really responding. She, the grandma really would not, could not answer questions. Was, this was not a conversation with the grandma. But my conversation with the grandma was a conversation with the rest of the family that was watching me converse with the grandma. And I, was, and I had the opportunity then to talk to the grandma, to encourage her, about the Christ that she had in a crucifix above her bed and encourage her to believe in that Christ that she had on the crucifix. I didn't take the time to uh, give an apologetic about not uh, worshiping saints and the Virgin Mary. I just talked about Christ, our one mediator. And I shared that with the grandma and encouraged her in any way I can. I don't know. I, I won't know till I get into heaven if she ever heard any of the things that I said in the last moments of her life. Maybe she looked up at that Christ and believed. But we have to be in tune. We have to be listening, and we have to be able to adapt to the situation that surrounds us. Not just Philip, but we find this also with uh, Peter. As Peter preached to Cornelius, he preached to Cornelius by visiting his home. This is a very, I find this a very humorous story in the book of Acts about how Peter handles uh, this response to go to Cornelius' house. Beforehand, uh, Jesus had to give him a, a dream, a vision of a sheet full of animals he was prohibited to eat. Do you remember the story? Everybody remember the story? Yes, good. You're still with me. I know you're thinking about brownies and ice cream. 
the sheet is full of animals he's prohibited to eat, and, and God says to him, take these and eat, have some shrimp. Have some pork. The barbecue is really good. Peter says, oh, no, I can't eat any of those things. And God says, do not call what I have decided to be clean unholy. God was preparing Peter for a, for a knock at his door from the servants of Cornelius because for Peter to step foot in Cornelius' home as a Gentile would have made him unclean. But what happens? Acts chapter 10, verse 28, he, and he said to them, you yourselves know, Peter speaking to Cornelius and his family, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. If you're willing to make disciples, if you're willing to go to that next door neighbor, don't forget what we talked about this morning. He's dead in trespasses and sins. He's going to act like a sinner. He's going to offer you a beer. And you're going to accept a Coke. And that's okay. Because that's what it's going to be. He's going to invite you to sit down on the couch and he's going to turn on his TV and he's going to watch the football game. And you're going to talk about life. You're going to spend time together. You're going to be visiting their home and doing things and being with people and, and situations are going to present themselves that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit squeamish. In Ecuador, one of the biggest events of the year for our church is New Year's Eve. Why New Year's Eve? Why not Christmas? Christmas is big, don't get me wrong. Christmas is big. Mother's Day is humongous. Father's Day is basically, was it Father's Day today? That's, that's how we celebrate Father's Day. <clears throat> But then we get to New Year's, and New Year's is by far the biggest holiday in the entire country. There is no other holiday where the entire country shuts down. You can't drive through the streets. All the streets close, and they set up soccer in the streets. Everything is, is over on New Year's Eve. Everybody just gathers with their family. It's the most important family time of the year. And everyone has this tradition in Ecuador where they build a kind of an homage or uh, a representation of the previous year. And then at midnight, they bring out that previous year and they burn it. And it symbolizes all of the troubles and all the issues that we had from the previous year are gone and everything's new. It's a brand new year. Now, don't ask me about January 1st, what happens at the first thing in the morning. But for those golden moments, everybody forgives each other and hugs each other and has a wonderful time of fellowship together. And it's this incredible experience together. So as a church, we decided that we wanted to provide that for our community because our community was kind of dead during that time. Everybody would go downtown and see all the displays downtown. So we decided to start hosting a contest for building these old years as a church. Don't talk to me about the doctrine of that. I don't know what, how that fits in on our doctrinal stance. But as far as we can tell, it's a fairly secular celebration that everybody loves to do, and we hosted a big fireworks display at midnight. The whole community could come out and be together for New Year's Eve. That makes us feel a little uncomfortable 
because New Year's Eve celebration gets a little crazy. And the neighborhood, the community leaders have invited us several times to be part of their celebration and to merge the two so that we're not in competition with each other. And that's created all kinds of debates about, well, you know, are, are we going to cross the line or how, how, how close do we want to be? Do we want, how do we want to define ourselves? It's created a whole lot of conversations to try to avoid immorality and try to avoid the appearance of immorality, but yet reach out to our community. Those are the things that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I think when you're doing discipleship right, you're going to feel a little bit of discomfort. You're going to feel a little bit outside of that comfort zone. Not just Peter with Cornelius, Paul too. When he preached to the Athenians, when he preached to the Athenians, he didn't start with a presentation about Jesus. He started with a presentation about themselves. Paul spent the time before he opened his mouth in Athens, he spent the time to learn about their culture. Just a little excerpt from that uh, passage in Acts 17, 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. If we study people's culture, if we study where they're coming from, we can discover what are the keys to get into their culture. Where are they open? Many people ask me, what's it like working in a predominantly Catholic culture? 95% Roman Catholic. We work in one of those fields, one of those places where people would say they're very hard to the gospel. We would readily admit that it doesn't seem like that when you look at our building project. But we work in a place that's very traditionally hard to the gospel. How do you reach a place that is so predominantly Roman Catholic? Well, there's a couple of things that are true. If you knock on any door in Cayambe, a random house in Cayambe, which we don't knock on doors, by the way, either, because so do the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. Uh, but if you were to walk, knock on a random door in Cayambe, and ask someone, what religion are you? Check off the box, Catholic, okay? Catholic. Do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Do you know what they're going to say? Yes. That's half the battle. Already, right there. They believe that the Bible is the Word of God. They believe that. Next box, next question you ask them, have you ever read it? Do you know what they're going to say? No. Do you have a Bible? Probably yes. You know where they have their Bible? They have it sitting up on a shelf in a beautiful display with the rosary bees hanging off of it and the candle lit in front of it. That's where the Bible is, but they have never opened its pages. And the greatest thing is, when you ask them, would you like to know what it says? They almost always say yes. They are curious. They want to know what the Bible says. And we've had men so many times come to our men's Bible study, very religious men. They walk into the Bible study and they want to be machi, uh, macho. Um, there's a lot of machismo in Ecuador. They want to be macho men, so they want to impress everybody. They say, oh, I've read the Bible cover to cover. I know the Bible. 
like the back of my hand. They go to one session of our Bible study and they come out going, I never heard that before. Because they haven't really read it. But the Bible is the Word of God. They believe the Bible is the Word of God. And what happens in our discipleship sessions with people who are Catholic is they, they believe the Bible is the Word of God. The Catholic Church has taught them that the Bible is the Word of God. And then they come across a passage that contradicts their tradition and contradicts the priest. And they're faced with a choice. I believe the Bible is the Word of God, but this is not what the church teaches. Which do I believe? And if they choose the Word of God, they're 90% of the way on the path to salvation. So it's important to find within the culture those keys that people are missing. Keys, that, keys to find that entrance of the gospel into their lives. And it's through creativity, it's through study, it's through taking the time to pay attention to them as much as it is about preparing ourselves. Because oftentimes when we prepare a, a generic presentation of the gospel, we're not really thinking about their point of view. We tend to use churchy language and talk about sins and and we talk about all kinds of uh, language that they don't necessarily understand. So we need to be sensitive to them and come, come at it from their cultural perspective so that we can use the vocabulary that's accurate to portray what the gospel is really saying rather than just use churchy terms that they're not going to understand. And they'll nod and they'll smile and they won't invite you back. So Paul also... He never paid attention to social classes. This is an amazing thing about Paul in Acts chapter 26, verse 28. He's on trial before King Agrippa, the king, the top dog, the man who could sentence him to life or death, and he spends his time sharing the gospel. He shares his testimony of why he's on trial, and he uses that trial to share his testimony, so much so that Agrippa responds to him, Acts 26, 28, saying, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa understood what Paul was doing because he was starting to convince him. Paul did not, did not pay any attention to social classes one of, the, one of the phenomenon that we observed when we first came to Ecuador was that the national church was doing what they thought they should do in missions, which is these Americans who have everything that are super rich and famous, which is what they believe the Americans are, came here to us poor Ecuadorians, shared the gospel with us, and so now as a church, we need to find a community that's more poor and less educated than we are and try to reach them for the gospel. We, we need to find people who are even worse off than we are to, to share the gospel. And what, it has that, what that has created in many places around Latin America and in Africa is a whole church full of people of the absolute lowest social class there is in society. Because the gospel is only going downhill. What's exciting in the national church as it begins to wake up is, is a lot of our national churches are starting to reach professionals, engineers, doctors, lawyers. And the gospel is starting slowly through discipleship to work its way uphill. 
Because it's not only the poorest of the poor who need to hear the gospel. It's not only necessarily your co-workers. It may be your boss who needs to hear the gospel. And God can get a hold of somebody who makes $1,000 a month or somebody who makes a million dollars a month and use them for his kingdom. We tend to build these divisions. We tend to build these, these ideas in our minds subconsciously of who we can share the gospel with and who we can't. We tend to only see people who are vulnerable or we tend to see people who are within our immediate circles who we feel comfortable speaking with and we tend to ignore everybody who's outside of those parameters. Paul didn't have those filters. And what a dramatic change it would be if we would open our horizons just, just a little bit. Every mayor of Kayambe, it's not a huge city. We have about 60,000 people in our city. Every mayor of Kayambe knows who I am. I'm not saying I'm buddies with him, that we hang out together, but he, they know who I am through the tourism department, not because of the church necessarily. Some of them because of the church also now because now the church has kind of become a bigger deal. But don't be afraid to get in touch with your community leaders. Don't be afraid to get in touch with the people who are just above you on the social scale as much as the people who are, who are below you. The gospel crosses all boundaries and all borders. Sometimes we just need to take a moment and be willing to share the gospel with those who God presents before us. If we're sensitive to his spirit, he'll do the work. And that's really where we're going. He'll do the work. In the story we read in Joshua, what we find is that the nation of Israel marches around the city seven times. It wasn't because they marched in some kind of synchronization with their feet that destabilized the walls. They just marched around the city in complete silence. And what they were able to do is watch how God conquered the city for them. These impenetrable walls that were so large that two chariots could drive around them side by side just fell over. They just fell over. And it says in the text that the nation was able, each man was able to march straight into the city from where he was standing. Romans 10, 8 through 15 says, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have not heard. How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The Bible calls us to preach to everyone. But there's a second, there's another flip side of the coin. The Bible also reveals 
that although we are preached to call, we are called to preach to everyone, the flip side of the coin, and and we can get into doctrinal debate later after over ice cream if you want. But the Bible also says that in spite of the fact we're called to preach to everyone, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And I, I, I just tell people completely honestly, I, have, I believe more and more in the sovereignty of God the longer I'm in ministry. Because there are people that I have worked with, I have cried with, I have shed tears with and, and, and sweat over for years and have never made any progress in the gospel. And then there are people who I've talked to for half an hour and were ready to receive Christ. And their lives were radically transformed. So it's not about me. It's not about my presentation. It's about the will of God and the sovereignty of God. And for me, it, working in a field that's very hard with people who are very hard to the gospel, that's an incredible relief. That's incredibly freeing. That means it's not about you. That means if you jumble your words or if you mix your Bible references or you can't remember that, that verse you memorized, it's okay. It'll be okay. Because if, that, if God has called that person, he will come to Christ. If you think that that was my last chance to share the gospel with him, don't worry, it'll be okay. God will send someone else to his life. God will bring him through another person in another time in God's plan if he has been chosen. Romans 11, 4 through 6. We just read Romans 10, chapter 10. Paul says, anyone who believes. And in chapter 11, Paul says, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So it's not about us. It's about God's grace. God gives grace where we would least expect it. One of the first people in our community to accept Christ was the president of our neighborhood. The president of the barrio. And, and because he came to Christ, he attended our church, we were able to meet in the community center for five years when our church was first beginning. Now, I haven't been able to bring any of the subsequent presidents of the barrio to Christ. Even though they're great friends of mine, they are completely in the world. God was sovereign and brought that man to Christ to perform that ministry at that time when it was necessary for the birth of our church. Because it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not that I did a better job presenting the gospel to the first president of the barrio, and I have not done as well of a job presenting it to the second president of the barrio. It's about God doing his work in his time. Romans 11.36 says, For him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen.
Our disciple-making ministry isn't about us. It's about him. Don't worry. Don't worry. He is with you. Don't worry about where you're going to find opportunities. Don't worry about with who will you share the gospel. Worry about obeying. And he does the rest. Believe me. Start praying. I found out after my message, by the way, I did not talk to Pastor Matt about this theme or anything I shared this morning. This is God's sovereignty at work. He said he just recently shared about this topic um, on Sunday evenings. And I just talked to Pastor Matt after the morning service. And we talked about this issue of discipleship in the local community. And how the church is feeling called to that. And praying for that. Start praying now. And start preparing yourself now. Start looking creatively around you. Start opening your eyes to the opportunities that God's already presenting you. And it'll happen. It'll just happen. You know enough Bible. You probably know enough Bible. You probably know more Bible than some of the missionaries and pastors in this room. Some of you. But you'll be able to do it. You can do it under God's grace and through His sovereignty. He will guide you to the people who need to hear it. You just be obedient. You just, when that spirit is prompting you, follow it. Follow and you'll be amazed at where it takes you. And you'll be amazed. And I hope in two years when we come back uh, that we'll be amazed at the stories that we'll hear. And we'll be amazed at the new faces that we see. Because God has moved in making disciples in this congregation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be here this evening. Thank you for the privilege it is to share your word. Thank you for the willingness of this congregation to learn. I've sensed a great openness this weekend to hear and, and to be challenged. Great willingness to step out in faith. Thank you, Father, for giving us the message and for making that message powerful. A fragrance of salvation for those who hear. Father, put us in those positions. Allow us to be part of that miraculous process of bringing someone from death into life, from darkness into light. Thank you for allowing us to be part of that incredible miracle and for making us a part of uh, that process of reclaiming and restoring yourself. May all the glory be yours and may we be amazed and impressed with you. In Jesus' name, amen.